If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the final section of 1 John chapter 5. And we began our study through this letter many, many months ago. I believe it was October when we began our study of 1 John. And this morning we come to the conclusion and the final message as provided the preacher can preach all that he's got, all that he's prepared. Um, you know, I will say this, coming to the end of a book study is really a bittersweet thing for me as a pastor teacher. Maybe more of a sweet thing for you, bitter thing for me. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's because these last several months, First uh, John has been like a familiar friend. And... Um, as just the providence of God would have it, it's amazing how, and those who preach and teach uh, can testify to this, that often as you're working through a passage of Scripture that you're teaching, there's a certain element of lived experience during that process where the Lord just really ministers to you and gives you insight in your own daily life. And those who teach, uh, I've always said that those who teach, we benefit far more from our study of God's Word, perhaps, than, than anyone else. And so, First John has been a familiar friend, uh, especially as it relates to this issue of assurance, Christian assurance. And that's what John writes all about. And we come to verse 13 uh, through the end of chapter 5, and in this 13th verse, uh, the apostle states his overall purpose for which he's written his letter. And he says he's written these things for the purpose of assurance. I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life through Jesus. Aren't you glad that in, in the midst of a world that is filled with uncertainty, you and I as Christian men and women can live with certainty? Now there's a lot in life that we can't be certain about. Uh, we're, we're not certain just how high gas is going to go over the summer. You know, we're, we're just short of an arm and a leg, I think, at this point in our, in, our, in our juncture. But we're not certain what's going to happen on the world stage with nations in conflict with one another. We may not be certain what's going to happen in our own individual lives as far as health. But there are some things that we can be certain about, the things that matter, and, and we, need this, we need this confidence if we're going to have an overall productive and fruitful Christian experience. Because without the certainty that the Apostle John writes about, uh, you and I are doomed to just this monotony, this treadmill of life where it's doom and it's gloom and it's chaotic. And that's no place for a child of God to live his or her life. But once you understand what you've been given in Jesus Christ and you're able to live with a sense of certainty and confidence, folks, listen, this is the key to real joy and satisfaction in life. And that's what John has written about in these five chapters. So I want you to find your place there, 1 John 5, verse 13, and let's read through the end of the book, verse 21. The Bible says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I want to speak from this subject this morning. We can be certain. In these closing verses of 1 John 5, the Apostle John tells us that we can be certain. We can live with certainty as people of faith. Now, you'll notice uh, the the oft-repeated phrase or word know here in these closing verses. Uh, This has been one of John's favorite words. He uses this word know some 37 times throughout these five chapters. And so he's writing to believers, and his purpose is to provide this sense of assurance that we've come to possess eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. This is different than his overall purpose in the Gospel of John, which John 20, verse 31 says, I write these things to you uh, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he writes his Gospel to try to persuade unbelievers to become believers. He's written 1 John so that he might encourage believers and that we might live our lives with a greater sense of confidence and certainty. And so those who've ever found themselves faced with pressure, pressure from the world where they've been questioned or or tempted to question their their faith, they're facing doubts, uh, they're in need of the truth found in these five chapters of which we now come to the end. And so John has kept coming back to this issue of obedience Love, uh, what a person believes concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And these are uh, tests of faith. If you want to examine whether or not you're in the faith, John has laid down these tests by which we can sort of gauge or test our Christian experience. And so these final verses are no exception because in these verses, John is making it clear that believers can live with certainty. In many ways, he simply says what he has said all along throughout the book. And so we can live our lives with certainty. Now, there are several certainties in these verses that the Apostle John emphasizes. And these certainties are sort of introduced with this word know that he uses. And you know what certainty is. If you were to look it up in the dictionary, it is a firm conviction that something is true. And so John is saying that we can live with this firm conviction that certain things are true in our Christian experience. And we need this confidence or else we're going to be plagued with insecurity and and we're going to be 
um, uh, stymied as it relates to our spiritual growth. So what is it that John says believers can be certain of? Well, there are three or four things that I really want to highlight. First of all, notice he says that we can be certain of eternal life. And he sort of lays this down in verse number 13. Now, we saw in the previous verses, they they ended with this powerful statement of fact. Whoever has the Son has life. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And that word life there speaks of divine spiritual life. There are at least three words throughout the New Testament translated life. And the word that John uses here is the word zoe. It's not bios, which refers to physical life, or suke, which refers to emotional life or the soulish part of a man or a woman, but it's zoe. And zoe is a word that's used throughout the New Testament to speak of the life of God. Uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the Zoe. Uh, He's come that he might give us Zoe life, the eternal life of God, the divine life given to those who are in Jesus Christ. And, And so here in verse 13, continuing that same thought, John says we can know that we possess this Zoe life. We can know with certainty, with confidence, that we've come to possess eternal life. Now, this is the opportunity of every Christian man or woman. And so this is not something that applies to a special class of Christian men or women. Uh, Some people say, well, there's only a few special folks in, in, in the Christian faith who can live with confidence, but the rest of us are sort of just doomed to live with uncertainty as it relates to eternal life. That's not what John says here. John is speaking to basic Christian experience. Because every believer is meant to possess this confident, certain knowledge of eternal life. No matter who you are, it's your possession as someone who's come to trust in Jesus Christ. And everything that he's written thus far is for the sake of our assurance. And so he's saying that there's a wonderful certainty here that we can possess. Again, there's a lot in life that we don't know. But... Whether or not I have eternal life is certainly not one of those things. God wants you to know that you have eternal life. And this is the opportunity of every person who believes. And notice that it's limited only to the one who believes in the name of the Son of God. Only those who come to faith in Jesus Christ can live with this kind of certainty that the Apostle John is describing here. And the word know that he uses here, he actually uses a couple of words translated K-N-O-W in our English translations. Uh, um, The word that he uses here is not a word that means sort of to gain knowledge or to progress in knowledge, but it's a word that means full knowledge. So he's used this word progress in knowledge several times in his epistle, but here at the end, he's using this word that speaks of fullness of knowledge. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may have fullness of knowledge that you have eternal life, that you may live beyond the shadow of a doubt, that you may possess with rock-solid confidence 
the knowledge, the full knowledge that you possess the life of God on the inside. And folks, that's the key to joy in your life right there. And so this is the opportunity for every Christian man or woman, but it's not just an opportunity, it's also an obligation. Uh, If we're uncertain of this eternal life, then let me tell you what will happen. We'll be hindered and inhibited in our witness and our sense of mission in the world. Because if I'm uncertain when it comes to my own spiritual position, then I'll end up spending most of my time preoccupied with myself rather than selflessly living for the sake of others. Because a person who's doomed to insecurity in their life, they're just perpetually thinking about themselves all the time. Constantly plagued with doubt. Constantly wrestling with fear and insecurity. And so what that does then, it robs you from this sense of confidence that God wants you to live. And living with that sense of confidence is critical if we're going to make an impact for the sake of the kingdom and the world. Because when you're free, knowing that you've been fully forgiven, fully accepted in Jesus Christ, and you're living with full assurance that you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to you, and that nothing can ever snatch you from his omnipotent hand that will free you to live your life on mission for Christ. It will free you to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. You you think about missionaries and martyrs who've lived and died for the cause of Christ throughout church history, and when we think of their experience, we may may be somewhat puzzled. What was their great secret? What led them to live with such courage and boldness in their witness? Listen, I believe it's because they knew him in whom they had believed. They knew Christ. And it was the certainty they possessed as those who had come to believe in the name of the Son of God. Uh, They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had eternal life. What they had in Jesus Christ was real. It was this confidence that compelled William Carey to go to India. It was this confidence that kept Adoniram Judson all those years in Burma despite suffering, despite loss. In fact, if you flip over to Hebrews chapter 11 for just a second, look at what the writer of Hebrews says in that great hall of faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. Look at how the writer of Hebrews begins that passage. Listen to this. Now, faith is the what? Assurance or substance, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so these heroes of faith who were ordinary men like me and you who went on to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ and obedience to God and submission to God, they lived with assurance and they lived with conviction. They had confidence. Uh, this, This is why Abraham, he was more than content to live in a makeshift dwelling, a temporary dwelling, a tent, even though the entire promised land had been promised to him and to his descendants. Why? Because he had assurance that he had been given something far better. And he looked forward to that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so when you and I live with this same assurance and certainty, we're not distracted by all of the stuff that the enemy throws our way in this life. 
We're not distracted by all of the the chaos that's going on in our culture. We're not distracted by those things, but we're able to process life with a sense of clarity, and that clarity is born out of the certainty that the Spirit of God has produced within our hearts as those who've come to believe in Jesus. Aren't you grateful that you can be certain that you have eternal life? If you're not certain of that this morning, let me tell you, you can be certain. So John says that believers can be certain that they possess eternal life. Now, there's a second thing that he says we can live with certainty. Uh, He says we can be certain of answered prayer. There's a lot of things in life I can't be certain about. Eternal life is not one of those things. And answered prayer is not one of those things. Notice John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So this certainty then relates to our prayer lives. I can have confidence when it comes to approaching God. I can communicate with God and know with certainty that he hears me when I call upon him in faith. How should we pray according to the Apostle John? Well, he mentions a couple of ways. First, he says we should pray confidently. This is the confidence we have toward him. And that word confidence translates a word that means boldness. Uh, It literally means freedom of speech. And the idea is we can come confidently before God who is our Father because through Jesus Christ we are his adopted sons and daughters. We've been born into the family of God through the second birth. We now have full conversation with God who is our Father. And listen, he's a Father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. And this is all on the basis of what Jesus Christ has accomplished through his redemptive work. The way of access has now been opened up for us. And it means that we don't go before God groveling as slaves, but we come confidently as sons and daughters before the throne of grace. And the writer of Hebrews says that we have a merciful and a faithful high priest who knows our struggles. He's well aware of our weaknesses. And and in light of that, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So you can have certainty as far as prayer is concerned. As a believer in Jesus, you can go confidently to God in prayer. And the second thing John says about this is that we need to come before God correctly, not just confidently, but also correctly. Because notice he says, here's the nature of our confidence. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so we're to come before God in prayer confidently but correctly that is it's according to his will and not according to my own will God is our father he provides for his own but he does not patronize his own Uh, he's not like the father of Veruca Salt y'all know who I'm talking about you remember the Willy Wonka the chocolate factory I'm not talking about that remake with Johnny Depp that wasn't worth watching I'm talking about the one with Gene Wilder in it all right Uh, you remember her from Willy Wonka, she was the spoiled little rich girl who wanted one of the geese that laid the golden eggs. You remember that? You remember her little song? She said, I want the world. 
I want the whole world. I want to lock it all up in my pocket. It's my bar of chocolate. Give it to me now. And so her dad whipped out his checkbook and was ready to pay Wonka any price to get little Veruca whatever Veruca wanted. But in reality, there is absolutely no loving father who would give his children everything that they asked for. Our children may not understand why we don't give them the things that they ask for, but we understand because sometimes children want things that could be harmful to them. Is that right? Now, is that not also translate as far as our spiritual experience is concerned? God is our heavenly Father. He knows what's best for us better than we know what's best for us. And so he won't give me simply everything that I want. God has promised to supply my every need, not satisfy my every greed. And so learning to pray in the will of God, this may be the most important principle when it comes to effective prayer. I'm indebted to Dr. David Allen for these principles, but I love this. When it comes to praying in the will of God, we should ask three questions. The first question is this, am I desiring the will of God? And so there's a sense in which we've got to desire the will of God before we'll ever really know what it is in a given situation. And what John says here uh, tells me that prayer is not a means for me to present my wish list to God so as to impose my will upon him, but rather prayer is the means by which I submit my will to his will. And it's the way that Jesus taught us to go before our Heavenly Father. This attitude that says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not so much my will being done in heaven as much as it is God's will being done on earth. And so it's opening up the door of need to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it understands that prayer is the means by which submission to his lordship is developed in my life. Now listen to this, the less that I pray, the more self-willed I become. You show me a self-willed person and I'll show you a prayerless person. Self-willed people are not praying people. Yet, the more I pray and seek to put myself in a humble posture of dependence before God, then the more submitted to his will I become. Prayer is the way that I'm brought into submission with the will of God. Why is it that Jesus, perfect in every way, we see him pouring out his soul in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest and betrayal, and just before his crucifixion? What is it that he's praying in Gethsemane? Not my will, but thine be done. And here you see the Son in perfect submission and obedience to the Father in a posture of total dependence upon the Father. In a similar way, that's how you and I are to live out our Christian life. And as we do this, and it's a regular practice in my life, here's what God does. He conforms me, molds me, shapes me, and makes me aware of his will in in circumstances. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. So am I desiring the will of God? The second thing that Dr. Allen mentions is this. Am I discerning the will of God? The will of God is something to be discerned, and God's given us two tools, primary tools, by which we discern the will of God. The first is the Word of God. You want to know the will of God? 
you have to know the Word of God because God has revealed His will in the pages of His written Word. So knowing the Word of God and knowing the will of God, these are synonymous. Can't have one without the other. But even beyond that, listen, here's what God's done for you as a Christian man or woman. The author of the book has come to take up residence in your heart. The Spirit of God is key to discerning the will of God. So as I know the Word of God and I rely upon the Spirit of God, the will of God is something that will be discernible in my life. Am I desiring the will of God? Am I discerning the will of God? And then, am I doing the will of God? It's one thing to desire it, to discern it. It's another thing entirely to do it. And so we've got to be completely resigned to do the will of God in our lives. And the key to doing the will of God, I love this, Dr. Allen says it's being willing to do it before we know what it is. (laughs) Isn't that just a good thought? The key to knowing the will of God is being willing to do the will of God before you even know what it is. It's the posture of your heart. It's complete surrender, total submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so how does this certainty then impact the way that I pray? Well, listen to what John says in verse 15. And we know, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. That's a present tense verb. Even though from our perspective, the answer may not be seen until sometime in the future, when we ask according to the will of God, and when we know that we've been heard by God, our requests are granted at once. You remember when we were in the book of Daniel? for so many months and in Daniel chapter 10 we learned this lesson from Daniel's prayer life Daniel was praying and asking God for some very specific things but the answer was three weeks delayed in getting to Daniel Daniel's prayer had been heard and had been answered the moment that Daniel prayed but it took three weeks before Daniel experienced it see some of you you're asking in the will of God and you're praying the answer's already been given You've just not yet experienced it. You know what I believe with all my heart? Whenever we pray for the healing of someone that we love in Jesus Christ, and that person is a believer in Jesus Christ, let's say we're praying for physical healing in that person's life. Is that ever outside the will of God to pray for physical healing? Listen, here's one thing that I know within the will of God, that eventually, by God's will, every believer in Jesus Christ will one day be given a resurrection body in which there will be no more cancer. There will be no, I'll, I'll, listen, I'll throw these things away. I'll never have to worry about not being able to see again, not being able to hear again. There'll be no surgeries, no aging. All of that will be reversed. The, the effects of the curse will be done away with. And we can live with that confidence, no matter what our present experience may be, we can live with the confidence that whatever we ask in the will of God, God hears us and God answers. And it may just be a while before that answer is experienced. But aren't you grateful that we serve a God who we can take our prayer concerns to and we can be confident that he hears us when we call? So I can be certain that I have eternal life. I can be certain of answered prayer. Number three, John says that we can be certain of forgiven sin. Now, verse 16 may be one of the most difficult 
verses in the entire New Testament as it relates to something known as the sin which leads to death or the sin unto death. But notice the context is within this paragraph where John has been explaining about prayer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So John's still talking about prayer here. Not so much petition, but intercession or coming before God on the behalf of someone else. And these verses are dealing with this issue of how to deal with sin among believers. Bear in mind, John's been writing to believers. And so here he's saying that when we become aware of a brother or sister who's committing sin, our first course of action should never be to talk with one another about it. Are you listening? Gossip. Listen, gossip is the opposite of prayer. And stirs stuff up unnecessarily. But John is saying what we ought to do is go to God first concerning that brother or sister who's been overtaken in a trespass. We're to pray and talk to our Heavenly Father about those kinds of things. And God who is the one who answers prayer, the giver of life, he's the one who will grant life to those for whom we pray. And then that brings up this issue, all right, well, what is this sin unto death that the Apostle John is referring to here in verse 16? Now, this has been a source of difficulty for believers throughout the centuries. And over the years, a sensitive Christian has come to verse 16 Uh, with a very sensitive conscience, concerned over whether or not he or she has committed this sin unto death, fearful of whether or not they've committed the sin unto death. And there have been a variety of positions that have been offered uh, trying to get to what John is referring to here. Now, some have suggested that it's shocking sin, some heinous act of sin, Others have suggested that this is apostasy or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which we know the New Testament teaches that sins against the Holy Spirit are among the most grievous of sins, serious sins. Even still, others have taught that the sin unto death will only be known when the person dies. And perhaps we consider the example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who lied to the Holy Spirit, and it cost them their lives. Or we think about the believers in the church at Corinth who were judged by the Lord for the way they haphazardly approached the Lord's table. And Paul says, for this reason, many are sick among you and many sleep. The idea is God had brought judgment to those believers for the way that they had sort of trampled on the Lord's table. Now, all things considered, I believe that John is referring here to a bitter resistance to the truth revealed in Jesus Christ. And so it's not so much the magnitude of the sin, but the attitude of the sinner that he's getting at here. And so sin leading to death, I believe it's that in which a sinner refuses to find cleansing and forgiveness in the only solution that has been supplied. Rejection of the gospel. We have a source of cleansing, but sin leading to death refuses it. 
Again, pastors have had counseling experiences with people who have feared that they've committed this sin unto death. And the reality is, if you had done so, you wouldn't care that you had done so. All right, so, so sin leading to death. I believe this is the persistent, willful rejection of the apostolic testimony concerning Christ. Again, what has John been dealing with with these Gnostic teachers who had rejected the apostolic testimony of who Jesus Christ is in exchange for their own ideas of who they thought Jesus was? And so it was a persistent, willful rejection of the gospel. The scripture says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And so if you sin and you reject the only means by which your sin may be forgiven, then what else is that sin going to do but lead you to eventual death? And the person who rejects the gospel of Christ only stands to receive sin's awful paycheck. Aren't you grateful that if you're in Jesus Christ, that debt has already been paid? Jesus Christ received that awful sentence in your place as the Lamb of God who suffered and died the death that I should have died for my sin? And so the point here, I believe the point here, you go on to verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. John here is referring to this certainty that as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that our sin has been forgiven by Christ and we've been born of God's spirit and the power of sin has been broken in our lives and we don't persist in sin. We don't go on sinning. That's not to say that we don't stumble and fail and sin because we do, but we don't live there. We don't make excuses for it. Uh, we pursue Christ. We're surrendered to Christ. The Holy Spirit who lives within us convicts us where we've sinned against God and so this is what the Apostle John is getting at here. We can live with this certainty that our sins have indeed been forgiven. And aren't you grateful that you have that certainty? He said earlier in the book, if we confess our sin, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So certainty, we can be certain that we have eternal life. We can be certain of answered prayer. And John says we can be certain of forgiven sin. And one last thing that he says here as we close out the book, notice he says we can be certain of divine understanding. We live in a confused world and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world and the enemy wants to keep people in the dark as to the real issues and the nature of those issues. But as those who've come to Christ and our eyes have been opened, what John says here is that we can live with divine understanding as Christian men and women. We know that we are from God, he says in verse 19. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Oh, what wonderful certainty is ours that we can live with divine understanding. And listen, you want to know why awful things like school shootings happen? Is your heart not broken over the events that have transpired this past week down in Uvalde, Texas? I, I saw, I saw, uh, 
I think it was an Instagram video of one of those nine-year-old little girls. One of the last videos that she had made was just a little clip of how much she loved Jesus. That was being played out over the news. This precious, precious child. How much she, listen, why do things like that happen in the world? John tells us we live in an evil world that's under the influence of the evil one. And this is the consequences of sin. And our hearts grieve. And deep within our heart, there's this desire. We long for Jesus Christ to come and to set it all right. And we know that he's going to. But the enemy, he's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that's what he's doing. He's wreaking havoc in our world. And I believe that he knows that his days are numbered. And I don't know if you sense this or not, but I sense in my spirit that evil's on the march. But listen, it is not outside of the sovereign control of Almighty God. And we need to live with this divine understanding lest we be discouraged, lest we give in to despair, lest we cave in to hopelessness and depression. We know that we're from God even though the whole world around us lies in the power of the evil one and yet we know that the Son of God has come. We know the hope. We know the solution. We know the answer for man's world and God has given us this understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. And you know what? If you're in him who is true, that's a place of security. You can live with confidence your position is secure. No matter how you may feel in any given moment, no matter what your circumstances around you may be telling you, no matter if conventional wisdom may be screaming the exact opposite, if you are in him, you can be certain, you can be sure, you can be full of joy. His son, Jesus Christ, he's the true God and eternal life. And before I finish, look at that final verse. John gives a farewell warning, and at first glance, it may seem rather strange, but he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Someone says, that just seems like he's kind of tacking that there at the end, but in reality, he's summing up his entire argument, because this really gets at the whole message of what John has been trying to drive home here. Don't buy into the lies and the pseudo-Christianity of the Gnostics, which is a false Christianity. It's not the apostolic testimony and in that sense it's an idol it's idolatry and idolatry is not simply one issue among many but idolatry is the issue in man's world where we make something ultimate and we try to get our ultimate meaning and ultimate identity and ultimate satisfaction from something that ultimately is lifeless and dead and John is issuing this warning to us keep yourselves from idolatry and the irony of idolatry is that it never liberates but it only enslaves but by way of contrast Jesus is the true God Jesus is eternal life Jesus is the real thing who brings substance and meaning to life so John reminds us all at the close of this little letter that a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is something that gives us joy, life, discernment, and full assurance of faith. Certainty. 
And you know, in my mind, I can almost hear the old apostle singing as he finishes his writing and he puts down his pen. I can almost hear him singing these words. It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. Let's stand for prayer this morning. We can be certain. Aren't you grateful for that wonderful promise? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Are you living your life with confidence? Is there a sense of certainty with which you're going about your tasks? Joy, life, love, all of these are characteristic of the redeemed men and women of faith who've come to trust in Jesus Christ, who go about their days with a sense of assurance and confidence and certainty. You say, Pastor, I'm just, I'm just not sure in my life. I can't say that I have the confidence that I possess eternal life. Then if not, can I just urge you right there where you are this morning in an attitude of repentance and in faith, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ who gives his life, Zoe life. Lord, I confess my sin. I believe that Christ died for me and that he rose again from the dead. Come into my heart and life and be my Savior and Lord so that I can live with certainty that I possess this eternal life that John has been describing. If that's you, then listen, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. As we sing, you can respond. Myself, Pastor Mark, others will be here. Brother Joel, we'd love to counsel with you. Or even after the service, you can see me out in the lower lobby or catch me here down front. And I'd love to pray with you and talk to you about how you can possess this certainty. Lord, would you take us and use us as your witnesses? Lord, that we would go into the world with a sense of confidence that we are indeed the redeemed sons and daughters of God. And how this certainty that the apostle is describing in this paragraph, it's so crucial, Lord, for our effectiveness when it comes to laying down our life for the sake of the mission. Lord, this life is so brief and eternity is so very long. May we not squander the time and the resources and the opportunity that you give us to make much of the name of Jesus. Use us, Lord, for your own namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.